Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players, and the musical times, and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these northern musicians who performed in northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. When I listen to music, I focus on the players and the parts they are playing and that one part that is just there, right where it should be in terms of volume, tone, and rhythm. I've always appreciated these humble, understated musical characters who deliver these parts, such as the late Jesse Ed Davis, who played with music icons such as Bob Dylan and George Harrison and many others. These unsung musicians say so much through their music without saying much at all. Chip One musician Tony Buggins from Denny Nukwe or Fort Resolution Northwest Territories has all of these attributes in spades. In his early years as a young musician, Tony learned from Angus Bolio, Leander Bolio, Lloyd and Alan Cardinal with their band The Native Cousins. He was also influenced by George Mandeville, who shared a similar tutelage with Angus Bolio in Fort Resolution. Tony was bitten by the music bug early in his life, in his interview, he talks about sitting at the feet of the fiddlers and guitar players at house parties and dances. In the early 1960s, there was no road or electricity in the community, so the music was all acoustic. Tony started out on a flat top, backing up the local fiddlers, playing traditional Métis songs and country and western hits with Angus Bolio and others. Eventually, they built a road and installed a generator in town, and Tony got his hands on an electric guitar and an amplifier in the mid-1960s. He and his friends ordered 45 and LP records through mail order, where they were introduced to rock and roll via Chuck Berry. Tony's schooling took him to Fort Smith, which in those years was a hotbed of music played by young bands in a competitive yet friendly environment. He moved on to Sir John Franklin High School in Yellowknife, and resided at Acacia Hall, where he already knew many of the players there and met new musical friends from across the territory. Soon he was playing in bands at school dances and in the dance halls and bars in town. 
Tony was a founding member of two of the most renowned bands of the day. At Akecho Hall, the band was the Universal Music Machine, or the UM Squared, and later on, out of Fort Resolution with the Native Cousins. Tony plays in the Chet Atkins finger-picking style, not a style I hear a lot of these days. The technique demands clean articulation and impeccable time that takes many years of practice and experience to pull off. It also asks of the player to hear the guitar in more of an orchestral role in the band, beyond the roles of basic rhythm and lead. When we launched the Musicians of the Midnight Sun website in late September of 2018, we arranged for Angus and Dorothy Bolio, George Mandeville, and Tony to perform on the CBC North radio show Trails End. I even joined in on the upright bass. When we were rehearsing and getting warmed up for the show, we were playing through one of the old-time hits, and I heard this subtle, muted guitar part that just seemed to glue the whole song together, and I looked up to see Tony looking over at me and smiling. My earliest memories goes back to a resolution, food resolution. That's where I grew up. Um, I wasn't born there, but I grew up there. There was a lot of music going on in res those days, live music. Everybody played guitar, fiddle, mostly. A lot of different musicians, a lot of young people played and sang. So I kind of grew up around that kind of environment. So the music was always there. Watching people play live, was, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to do. I guess it's kind of stuck with me ever since I first saw it. But there was a lot of good music going on. Around the 60s, I think, um, people that were going to Keicho Hall came back to Res for Christmas holidays, and people like George Manuel, and they were picking guitars. It's the first time I've seen anybody picking guitar. Before that, it was all strumming, Phil strumming. George Manuel, Isidore Jerkin, um, Matthew Lafty, people like that came home, back to Res, and they were all guitar pickers. So, oh, that was it. How's it, Pat? How's it? Hooked away. So I, I picked it up and then I, um, my friends and I played a lot. We played mainly instrumentals, Ventures, Shadows, all the instrumentals. We played a lot of early uh, British stuff too, music. Um, but we did that in res with the Simpson Series equipment there. But we kind of got the feeling of working as a group back then. Because all of us played, but we all played individually, you know. But then, when everybody started buying guitars, we had amps, and then we started bringing them together, and we started working music out, and we found out, you know, hey, you can, you can do something here, you know. So it was good. And then I, I kept doing that. Then I went to school, boarding school in Fort Smith for two years. Continued playing, met some other kids. A lot of music in Smith back in those days. People like George Kudrowski and those guys were just getting into it. Randy Daniels, you know. So there was a whole new crew of kids to play with. Then I moved to Keicho Hall for my grade 11 and 12. Then I ran into Tom Hudson and Pat Burke and Kevin Mackey and Brian Kovach. During the high school days, we played a lot of music. And you know, like, played at the Elks for uh, adult dances. I think we played in the range one one week during the first early winter games. A lot of school dances, high school dances, and here, over, and here. It was a lot of fun. Just kept playing after I, I left school. I went back to Res, played in Pine Point for a while, and then I came back to Yellowknife and worked with Archie Ludit and Northbound Freeway. Okay, I'll get you. I'll get you to stop there because there's like there's already lots of stuff. Um, when you were playing back in Res, 
if you can try and remember some of the names of the people that you were playing with back then, or even even what years that would have been when you were first starting to play in Rez. Probably 64, 65, okay. 66, played with um, well, Alan Colonel, uh-huh. his brother Lloyd, Angus Bolio, George Marvel and Isidore yeah. Tramajo, Herb Bolio, uh, there was a guy named Billy King who played guitar, Ernest Bolio, and there was quite a few, some friends of mine who passed up, guys like Ricky Manville, he was there. When you first heard George coming back from the cage show and he was, like you say, picking those those early guitar instrumentals and stuff like that, you weren't playing those instrumentals with Angus, you were probably playing more traditional stuff, so you were probably playing a few different kinds of music, right? No, I think it was all fiddle music. When I first started playing publicly, it was all fiddle music. Yeah, yeah, dances. And uh, I think my first dance was when I was about 13 years old. I'm pretty sure it was, I remember that. And then playing with Angus? Yeah. He seemed to be a mentor for for a whole generation. He did, yeah. yeah he saved, he, he actually saved music. Eh? There was a time when there was no music at all, no music happening in res. And, um, Angus kept a few of us going, like myself, Leonard Bolio, the original Native Cousins. And he went out and bought all kinds of instruments, and he kept us at his house to make sure we didn't get carried away. You know, when you're young, you get carried away. So he bought drums, and he bought amps, and everything, and he just set it up, and he put us to work. When you were growing up, what kind of music were you listening to? How did you get it? Was it on records, on the radio? Yeah. Radio, <coughs> mainly when I was young, it was radio. But then my oldest sister, I was fortunate enough to have an older sister who was in school in the 50s to bring back the 45s, Buddy Hollies and Jack Scotts and Elvis, of course, and, and Bobby V, Bobby Vinton and all yeah. those Bobbies, that type of music. And it really attracted me, that music, the upbeat and the, the energy as, as composed to classic country that I was used to, three-chord songs, you know. Then my sister and her generation would come home from school, bring back all this music, all this 45s and LPs, and I make sure I had about three or four of them when they take off. So, <laughs> and it was, and then the, that kind of got me in, into live music because I, I, I could feel the energy. Yeah, I could feel uh, how much fun they were having when they were doing that kind of music and. And it was kind of natural for us to get into instrumentals because nobody sang back in those days. We grew up with fiddling guitars, everybody. It was just all instrumentals, eh? All of us that picked up a guitar all ended up playing instrumentals. And then everybody went to different schools, different communities as we grew older and people took different paths. The traditional music that Angus was doing, when I talked to him, he just said it was like a lot of country and western. That was the popular music of the day was country music and, and he was doing the instrumental versions of those. Is that mostly what was coming up on the radio or were you catching any of that early rock and roll stuff on the radio? Or? Not, not too much. Um, CBC um, was a station we got in res and the only station a lot of us listened to was Gather Round, which was mm-hmm. a very popular dedication show. Straight country music. Yeah. So that was my exposure to music. That's the only time we listened to radio now. Most of the time we were in schools. And if we're not in school, we're out playing or jamming. So it gave you something, gave you something to do, and sort of 
kept you out of trouble was the road the road was was in by then eh no i was pretty lucky it was all isolated so we didn't have that lot of influence but we were pretty lucky we got some of us um, were fortunate enough to send away you know for catalogs from the states and end up with these big fender catalogs of stratocasters and telecasters so uh, like if, if you broke strings, where would you get strings? Like Hudson Bay, yeah, it's only a place, yeah. They had some strings and they had some picks. That was good. They were pretty expensive for for us back in those days, but you had to have them. And a lot of acoustic guitars. Everybody played acoustic, so a lot of our instrument early instrumentals were all acoustic. Electric guitar didn't come until probably just before I left Res to go to school, boarding school. So most most of my early stuff was all on all on acoustic. All on acoustic. Yeah. So did you get your hands on the electric when it came into town or Oh yeah, but I oh yeah, I was fortunate enough. My um you know, my father was a wildlife officer, so I grew up pretty well. One day I came home from school and I was an electric guitar and electric amp sitting in the middle of the living room. He encouraged me and he bought me he bought the stuff for me, yeah. But he wouldn't say he did it. You know. And then start buying uh, ventures, you know, albums, shadows, every instrumental album we could find we buy. And so the Bay would be bringing them up too, right? That was the only Mostly, and no, some of them from the Bay, but uh, most of us young kids would order it right from down south. Oh, okay, just, so like a mail order. Yeah, just write COD, send it off, and wait for it at the air, at the post office. Ah, <laughs> exciting. Pick it up and run home, man. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. yeah. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. It's oh, yeah. still 45s, right? 45s and LPs. We knew who, who got the new one, the latest. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of trade trade everybody them around. Everybody run over there, boy. Yeah. Listen. Trade them around, and everybody would check it out. There, no, no. You go to the house, and nobody would trade. I mean, those oh, okay. were, hey, they were precious, boy. <laughs> <laughs> you take good care of it. Just about until wear you it. learn it, boy. Yeah, yeah, note for note, <laughs> note for note. Just about wear it out learning yeah. it there. And you had you had a like a like a record player, a stereo. Yeah, uh, in in our home we had a big stereo, one of those big consoles they call it. But most of my friends had their own turntables and stereos and guitars. I don't know how, but everybody managed to buy the guitars, you know. Some families were having it pretty rough, single parent families with five kids. Somehow those parents would get their kids' guitars. Somehow, you know. Yeah. So what years are we talking about there, Tony? Probably 60 to 65 Centennial year was 67, I think it was, or something. That's when I left to go to boarding school, so up until 60s. By time, by from 65 to 67, it's all electric stuff. All electric, yeah. Different music altogether. Yeah. Chuck Berry came into the scene, and that that killed it. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was it there, right? That was that traditional country boy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, as far as growing up in a isolated place, I mean, there was no road. Just the just the guitars. You're you're entertaining each other. Basically, is what what's going yeah. on. There's no TV. Summertime in Riz, I remember um, those dances. Anytime people felt like dancing, people would work. Then after work, days were long. Eh? So the young people and elders would get together, and us young kids, ten of them, we all get together and play ball for about three or four hours. You know, have a big ball game, and people would come out and watch us. And, cheer you know after that somebody would suggest hey let's go have a dance and to pick a place 
they'll go there and they'll ask the people, and people say, yeah, then they'll give them something, take all the furniture out, put it outside, dance all night, eh? When the dance is over, people stay behind and wash the floors, clean it up, bring her back, everything back in. Ten o'clock next morning, it's like nothing happening. From place to place, different houses, all the time, yeah. I used to sit in the corner right where the musicians were playing, and that's where I'd sit, I wouldn't move. That live music, then, yeah, the feeling of listening to live music was so good, I just, no matter how tired I was, I, I wouldn't move, eh? <laughs> I'd sit there, but... <laughs> Who would you be listening to then, like playing at these dances? Oh, elders, like people that are gone now, but there's really good old-time fiddlers like Sam Norn, the late Sam Norn, Johnny Bolio, people like Robert Sayin, they played, Billy King, Joe King, but those old-timers were the main guys, they played it non-stop, sweat pouring on the forehead and they play for an hour, square dance. People strumming guitars with combs just so they can hear. And that's how loud the fiddle was, you know. <laughs> they just gave her a man, hundred percent, hundred and ten percent. Sweat don't stop them, boy. They're just sweating, pouring sweat, and they're just so giving her. Yeah. Still keep playing that way. These dances would go all night. Yeah. Say all night long, but they would just sort of take turns. Like, yeah, the, maybe the ghost was three fiddles one night. I'll have a good time. Just fun. So that's kind of environment it was for young people. It's live music, just full steam ahead. No TV too, so the only other source we had was radio. Eh? Sounds like paradise to me. It was. You were what, 13 when you left and went to boarding school? I so. This is just a bit of an offside as far as 67 goes, but the centennial sort of celebrations and that whole barge mm -hmm. thing were you in Smith or were you in Res? I was in Res then. Did the barges come through? Yeah. There? Barge came through there, but that was the end. That was my last summer in Res. That that fall, I left to go to school. So I did see the barge and Tom and, Tom and the boys. Yeah. That was it. Yeah, just before. I think that was that was great because that's what I wanted to do. And I seen Tom and those guys, a band, come in and play. And I was just getting ready to go to school. And I knew that's what I wanted to do when I get to school. Yeah. Did you get a chance to play with them at all? No, 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 I oh no. Couldn't even talk to them. Some things you just don't forget. You know? Yeah, that's Especially true. when it's got a big impact. Yeah, it's like rock stars. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three years later I was playing in the same band with Tom. That's a bad. In your time in Smith, were you able to keep playing oh, yeah. in different bands oh, and yeah. stuff? First year I got there, we had a <coughs> band, played some high school dances, and it was good. It was just, you know, just like in heaven for a teenager. A lot, a lot of good musicians, because there was kids from all over, all different communities. It was over about yeah. maybe five of five hundred of us. So there were some kids from Providence, from Simpson, here over there. Good, good musicians. So we can hook up with each other little bands here and there, you know. Smith was good. Smith had about, had about I think it was six bands going at one time. Do you remember some of the names of the people that you were playing with when you were there? Some of those people still playing? Philip Constant was one. Ernie Constant's brother. He was okay. our lead singer. He was a pretty good musician then. 
Ricky Mantle played bass for me at that time. Bobby Bollier, Robert Bollier played drums. I think I said those guys I worked with for two years. It's three or four of us. It's not bad going to school during the day and practicing and playing for dances on weekends. Yeah. It's good. Indeed. You don't even think about home. <laughs> but you, you'd go back home like in the summertime? Christmas time, every summertime. every summertime. break I go home. Yeah. And I was always on telephone. Every, I was always on the phone. But it wasn't like I was totally away from home. Close enough you got, maybe got some visits as well after that. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I could went home anytime I wanted to jump on an airplane. My dad did. Take the fare to go home Friday, back on Monday, back in school. But I didn't do that. Not too often. I'd rather stay in Smith and play music. Yeah. You yeah, know? That's, sure. That was it. You know, time, there wasn't enough time. There was so much music to learn. I mean, you're constantly working, you know, all your free time. You gotta be one step ahead of the rest of the guys, kind of thing. <laughs> sort of like a competition, yeah, you know, learning yeah. new songs oh, for, yeah, the, yeah. for the weekend and stuff. And the latest song, I remember that when we first learned that, Hey Joe by Hendrix, everybody, everybody else was playing it by um, Johnny Rivers. <laughs> you had to know what the other guys were doing. You had a spy. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. <laughs> It was good competition, friendly competition, a lot of music. We were exposed to different kind of music because different bands enjoy different music. Not everybody played the same things. That made it nice. You go listen to other guys. You have a lot of fun. No jealousy or no that kind of foolish feelings, yeah. you know, a lot of support. And still no television there at that time? No. So you guys you guys were the entertainment, you know. Yeah, there was a lot of music. Yeah, yeah, live music was a big thing then, especially for young people. Anything happening outside, there was a, an opportunity to put on a show. Go for it, you know. If we didn't do it, some of the boys in town would do it. Just had a fire hall, wasn't being used Friday night when we just opened it up, put up, set up a bandstand, and have a bunch of kids come over and have a dance. Summers, you go back. To res, were you able to keep playing as much in res? Not too much. I go I back and work. But yeah, yeah, I was kind of I was kind of guy that wanted to work. So last three years, I think when Pine Point was operating, I used to work at the mine in summertime. So what kind of work were you doing for them? Oh, I just sweeping and anything that needed to be done. Labor or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any chances to play in Pine Point? Like oh yeah, yeah, sometimes. Elsie Berger used to play in a bar there. Sometimes I was I was underage. I remember I used to go in a bar, play during the break. I used to go to a coffee shop, sit there, drink coffee, and then when it's time to play, they'd come and get me. Here is Elsie Justice Berger, a well-known musician from Pine Point. As a young man, Tony worked for a few summers at the mine in Pine Point, and would often sit in with Elsie's band at the Pine Point Hotel. What a musician! What a guitar picker! Oh boy, it's fantastic. I couldn't even come close to him. Far from it. Were you getting paid when you were playing with those yeah. guys in the, in the bar there? Yeah. 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 So you must have you must have made some pretty good money there. I, I, I guess so. I wasn't too making yeah. money during the day. I just that. accept whatever yeah. they give me during yeah. for playing. I just accept what they gave me. I wasn't expecting anything actually. Good spending money. Buy some new guitars. No, no. I used my one guitar for 19 years. 
tele- funny fellow part telecaster. That that wasn't your first guitar, though, was it? Yeah, my actually my first guitar was a Rickenbacker pet when I was in Fort Smith. Had a little cheap uh, uh, Simpson Sear catalog I left resolution with. Got to Fort Smith and then uh, one of our supervisors was going to Edmonton on a trip. He said, I'll take your guitar, I'll trade in for you, he told me so. Took off, came back with a Rickenback. I brought that here, I had that in Smith for a year. Then I transferred to Akito Hall for grade 11, I brought that guitar with me. I used that when I first played with that. You know, squirt. I don't know whatever happened to that guitar. So the, instru- the instruments would come up from down south or would, would you would they, you would just sort of trade, not not really trade, or it was sort of wheel and deal guitars if, if you found one that was, or if somebody wanted to sell one, I guess it was probably mm-hmm. no problem selling a guitar in those days. No, it wasn't like that. The, uh, back in those days when I wanted a guitar, I had to go to Edmonton and get it myself. Yeah. And I got to know quite a few good music stores in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. I'd go around and they would give me a good deal, I'd buy. That's the only way. Yeah. I wouldn't trust anybody to buy a guitar for me, and I wouldn't buy a guitar off anybody. Not, not then. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything. No. Had to be brand new. So I had to go to Edmonton for that. Most of us did. And so was there opportunities to do that when, when you were that young or when you were yeah. working in Pine oh, Point? Oh yeah, we so? were traveling. Yeah. We'd take three or four days and about five of us would jump on a bus and take off to the city. Come back. Yeah. In the late 60s, yeah. we're talking here. Yeah. Do what <coughs> we wanted to do, you know. Do what we had to do. Yeah. Know? That's what I meant to say. Yeah. And when everything was done, you get out. And come and head back up to school. Yeah. And so from there, that was sort of like grade school, and then it was high school, and, and yeah. coming up to to Cato Hall. Were you looking forward to that? Actually, I wasn't. It's a different story, though. I was in grade nine. I met this girl in Smith and Smith. Two years, nine, ten. And then she got transferred to Cato Hall. I didn't know that. I went back to Smith. I found out she wasn't there. I had to get to Cato Hall, man. So I phoned home and complained to my father, and he got on the phone. And I have my cage hall. Yeah, I was following her. I didn't care about anything else. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I ended up in cage hall. Then there was a band there before that. Uh, previous year was Pat Burke had a band. Tom Hudson had a band. Centenaries, I think you recall. And Pat Burke had a band called Shondells or something. Brian Kovacs from Hero was. I met him a year before in Fort Smith. He played with a band called Shadows of Night. He was a bass player, and he was at the Cato Hall, and myself, and then we listened to these other guys play. So we started talking, we wanted to get a band going, but all the good players were already taken. Eh? So we went through a lot of other different boys, and then Tom, the band kind of dissolved, and then Pat's band kind of dissolved. So right away we picked out all those guys we wanted to work with, and we threw a good band together. That was the first year at Cato Hall. What kind of music did you put together with them, like? Steppenwolf, Rolling Stones music, a lot of bubblegum music, anything that was danceable back in those days. There were Burton and the Animals, a lot of British invasion stuff, Cream, that kind of stuff. A few country songs here and there. <laughs> yeah. But it was a lot of, yeah, it's, any, anything that was popular, you know, like we went, we did things by Tony Dawn and Orlando, you know, like not three times and stuff like that. Yeah. From there we would play some really loud stuff. High energy. It's good. It's really different music. It's 
completely different from traditional country boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was just going to say from probably a few years before sitting there and listening to the traditional fiddlers yeah. all the way up to Steppenwolf and Cream and all the rest of that stuff. That's a lot of uh, transition. That's a it, lot it of is, yeah. Of music it, 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 in a really short time. It happened so fast, Pat. That's what I said. All of a sudden, you were exposed to all this stuff. Holy smokes! I mean, yeah. it's just like a sea of wonderfulness, you know. Jazz. I started listening to blues and different types of music. It was really, really great. I really enjoyed that. What was your time in Kitchener Hall? You were playing. Did you play in town? We played all over the place. Yeah, we played. When we first started, we had Tom and Pat singing for us. We had two singers. There were six of us in the band. But then we went through a whole process of when, uh, going through people, letting them go, stayed in. Finally, when Pat left and it was down to Tom, there was five of us. That was it. That was the core. That was the band. And then we started up playing at Keicho Hall, dances quite a bit, Sir John. And we started doing the Elks, um, adult dances on weekends, Friday and Saturdays. We were allowed, to, we were the only band allowed to do that. So Friday night, Saturday night, we'd play for wet dances. We did all, most of the schools in, in, in the city. So we did that for about two years. And when I graduated, that was the end of that. So everybody was able to hang around for those two years. You were able to keep that, yeah. that five-piece group together for yeah. two years that everybody was in. And that last year we played in Keicho Hall. We, we, the whole band bought our, our, all our own equipment. We bought thousands of dollars. We went, we went over to Harold Glick. Remember him? Oh, yeah, I remember that. And we got him to order amplifiers, guitars, drums, PA system for us, charge it up. We told him, we'll pay you off by next June. And he did it. He did it. Amazing. He did it. Brought all the stuff to the Keicho Hall. Brand new amps, big garnet wow. amps. Boy, oh, as tall as I was. Powerful stuff. And we had Marshall amps that the Keicho Hall had. You know, the hostel itself. Mm -hmm. They had equipment and they had Marshall amps. So we did it. In May or June, I think in May, we made our last payments to, to Harold. Paid off all the stuff. And everybody kept whatever they played. Yeah. You know, everybody went home. Yeah. That was good. No, that's amazing. So we, yeah, we were, <laughs> we did that. You know, it was pretty amazing. Bunch of school kids. Yeah, that's. Like I say, yeah. It sounds like paradise to me, man. That's, uh, that's great. You, you probably spent as much as you spent on your instruments. You probably spent that much on records, buying records from them. Probably. Probably, right? <laughs> yeah. Always there. Well, there was a lot of records back in those days, right? Stacks of LPs. You hang on to that stuff? Especially, I, I, I got lots at home right now. I kept a lot of it. A lot of it was still in good shape. A lot of instrumentals. Early stuff. So by that time, is that when you bought your Telecaster? Was when you bought No, it? during the um, Cage holidays, I bought a Vox. I used a Vox guitar. Okay. One pickup. Nice little guitar, boy. Mm -hmm. just nothing fancy, just... Volume, one little pickup, and that was it. People thought I was crazy, all kind of toys that, you know, but that's, it was a working machine. Yeah, really nice. Sounds in your hands. Yeah, really nice setup. Really light guitar. Small, kind of, yeah. Played that for two years. Then I traded that in and got my telly. And that's, I played that for almost 20 years. Love the sound of the telly. Mm. Fell in love with the sound of the telly after I played with Angus and those guys. Country, yeah. Just the look, the sound, the 
twanginess, the, the the way it reacts when you hit it. You know, the telly, I mean, it's something about it. Which is, it's not a fancy looking guitar, but boy, it's, you can do lots of machine like that. Who would have been playing up here locally at that time? But just Tom, uh, John Teese and his brother Gary, Wayne Bertrand, and Tony Gilchrist, I think his name is. Yeah. Stained Glass. There was the only ones that, that were working. I was, I, I remember. It was them, they were the town band and we were the future hall band. So the years you would have been here would have been between 69 and 71? Yeah, around there, 68, 70. As I graduated, I left 71. So okay. fall of 68, I probably got here. Yeah, those guys were still around there. Yeah. That's how I met, yeah, yeah, that's how I met Gary. Okay. Gary and I have been friends ever since, yeah. even to this day. Yeah. Yeah. We used to hang out together back in those days. Then it was, uh, during the centennial year, there was a band they, they brought in from Whitehorse. Connects, I think they were called. So they did some few shows at the Kitchell Hall, saw them. So you felt pretty comfortable here in town and stuff? I mean, the oh, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed it, yeah. It was probably the most enjoyable part of my education. Okay, Tony, I'll just get you to, to name off the, the guys that, that were in your in your band there for, for the couple of years you were in a cage show. Um, in, the boy, in the band called UM Squared, mm. my band, uh, Tom Hudson was doing the lead vocals, Mark Woodford playing the keyboards, um, Brian Kovach had the bass, Kevin Mackey the drums, and I was doing the lead. Silly question, how'd you come up with the name UM Squared? I was taking uh, chemistry in high school and they wanted to call the band Universal Music Machine. That's UM squared. Very nice. <laughs> <Just popped out>. Very <laughs> so nice. that's what they called it. Yeah. Uh, I got something out of chemistry class. <laughs> <laughs> Did you pass the class? Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, graduation time and everybody went their own direction? Graduation dance I, I played for my own graduation dance all of us did actually yeah that was summer break I think that's when I left that was the end of that for me I think the band kept going for a little while throughout the summer and into the following year I think for a while with a different guitar player and then everybody went their separate ways that was the end of that era it was good it was pretty fast two years I would like to thank Tony for sharing his rich musical life story with musicians of the Midnight Sun. To hear more, see photographs of his life, and the full interview transcript, check out musiciansofthemidnightsun.com, linked in the show notes. You can follow along as well on Facebook and Instagram. If you would like to support the continuation of this project, please donate it on our website, musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. I would like to thank the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee, and the Northwest Territories Creative Industries Economic Recovery Fund for supporting this podcast series. And to thank the Northwest Territories Arts Council, Government of the Northwest Territories Department of Education, Culture and Employment, the Yellowknife Community Foundation, and the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee for supporting the website so far. A full list of supporters can be found on the website. The archival audio of this podcast is from the Northern Musicians Project Collection at the Northwest Territories Archives. I'm Pat Braden. Thanks for listening.